welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Beth, why don't you come and join us? And why don't we give Beth a warm welcome? So, Beth, um, many people here um, will know you, but for those of you who don't, just uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself before we hear about your time in Egypt? Um, I've been part of this church since 2007. Um, I'm married to Paul, he's over there. We've got a little girl called Mary Joy, who's a year old. Um, and yeah, I'm a mum at the moment. Brilliant. Now, you, um, you were in the Arab Spring actually let's go back a bit you led a prayer room in Egypt now why (laughs) of all the places why Egypt yeah so um yes I was part of a a um, house of prayer there so um just for those people who don't know what a house of prayer is (laughs) just explain uh, you know do you sit around praying all day what is it what does it look like what does it mean yeah so first we had um, a dedicated prayer room and we were a team, well actually the, the numbers um, changed quite a lot, but we would have two hours a day in the prayer room in, uh, interceding for Egypt. And we met corporately twice a week um, on a Wednesday evening to pray for Egypt, on a Friday morning to pray for the other teams. Um, and then we would host prayer teams, we did prayer training, um, annual prayer events for other um, missionary intercessors in the Muslim world. And what, do, so... I hope it's all right to ask this. People might ask me this all the time. They say, well, you work on Sunday. What do you do the rest of the time? So, mm. um, so for, for you, for, when you say, you know, you did these two hours of prayer, what were you doing the rest of the time? Were you, were you, would you have a job or were you um, just sort of out serving in the community? Yeah, so um, I was teaching in, uh, in English. Um, I was try, trying to learn Arabic. Um, I was also the worship coordinator of our local international church, um, um, doing friendship evangelism, um, and also um, sort of the, the 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 communications person for our network of missionary intercessors. So helping to run events and do prayer training, things like that. So and so you were you were in Egypt during the Arab Spring. Did you sort of in the lead up to that? Did you sort of sense that something was bubbling away? That there was this thing that you that Egypt was on the cusp of actually God had spoken quite clearly um so in our annual gathering which had been around the Easter time before um it kicked off at the end of 2010 um there were two very clear pictures that came out of that time one was of a statue of a pharaoh that suddenly crumbled and a black snake rose up in its place and another one was um, of two waves that came across North Africa from the west to the east one wave of laughter and then the next wave of fear and terror and at the time we didn't really know what what that meant Um, and when um, Ben Ali um, left um, Tunisia he was the president there suddenly we were like oh, <laughs> the people have suddenly realised that they've got a voice and that they're going to be heard. And at the time, you know, Mubarak had been in power for 30 years. It felt crazy to think that he could suddenly leave, that that statue of a pharaoh could suddenly mm. crumble. Um, but yeah, it took two weeks and three days 
of the wow. re- re- revolution and he was gone. And how did it sort of, that, I mean, that sounds like it was incredibly quick, but um, obviously these things, you know, they sort of, over time, as you look back, you know, often in hindsight, you see, well, there were sort of things sort of starting to happen. But how did, how did the sort of revolution evolve? Um, well, it got, it got violent quite, quite quickly. And because the authorities were trying to stamp down on, on the protests, it meant that more and more people took to the streets because more and more people had, had been killed. Um, the authorities turned off the internet and mobile phone coverage, um, which meant that we couldn't communicate with people except by landline. And, you know, who has your landline n- n- phone n- number? Um, and because there was no mobile phone signal, we couldn't get money out of the banks. People were um, panic buying food. And they actually put a curfew on so that you could only be outside of your home for um, certain hours of um, daytime. And so just talk us... It's just so fascinating hearing this from someone who was actually there. So just talk us through what life was like in those, obviously, the, you know, sort of it's over in two weeks, sort of, but what it was like living there. You talk about the internet going off and, you know, curfew and all the rest of it. Well, what was it like? Yeah, I think, um, so I'd only arrived four months before that and I was planning to be there at least for two years. I ended up in Egypt for, for five years um, and I it was hard to think, okay, do we book flights out? Do we need to leave? And if we go, are we coming back? Um, and so it was just a very uncertain time. The, I would say that the revolution actually carried on for quite a long time after yeah. that because there were, there were protests on Fridays. Um, and when the next elections came around, the Muslim Brotherhood got in and a year later he was ousted as well. So it just pretty much felt like most of the time that yeah. I was there, there was a lot of un, um, uncertainty. And... How did you see God move? Um, and how did you see um, yeah, God move during that season? Um, so it was very interesting to see, and one thing that I really wanted to communicate was um, the, the, about the responsibility of prayer. Because we were there week in, week out, as a corporate group, day in, day out, personally, um, praying for all that was happening. And I'd gone thinking, you know, I'm here to reach people and to save souls. And actually I did, you know, have times of reading the, 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 the Bible with friends but didn't see anybody personally come to Christ. But I felt God say to me, actually, you're there to pray through this time of, of, of uncertainty. Um, and Mother Teresa, actually one of her quotes is, God doesn't call you to be, God doesn't demand that you're successful. God demands that you're, that you're um, faithful. And we saw things like when the first round of elections came up, there were about 27 names, um, and we just got them all out on the floor and prayed for, for each one of them, and they, they ranged from quite conservative, like old, the, the old-style regime, or very Islamist. Um, and the next day, four people were disqualified. And yeah, the, the, the most is, uh, is Islamist guy. Um, and it just felt like, actually, when we pray, things really change. And when we don't pray, you know, we're not steering the way that, that, that things are going. And it felt like we were setting the foundations for what Egypt was, um, would, uh, sorry, what Egypt would be like. Yeah. And do, when you look at Egypt now, 
have things turned out how you thought? So I didn't lay, uh, this is off the top of my head, this question, but did you, is what Egypt looks like now what you thought Egypt was going to look like? I'd say not much has changed. Okay. Um, If you look at it politically, that the guy who's in charge is still pretty um, heavy-handed. But what really happened after the revolution was a sense of hope that um, things could change. We saw the church becoming a lot more vitalised and a lot more aware of the fact that they could reach Muslims, that it wasn't just about um, them surviving. Um, Yeah, there was was actually one story that I, I wanted to share about. So we helped support an Egyptian church planting team who were very effective. And one of their main leaders in an oasis called Fayoum that was just a bit further south of um, Cairo. Um, He came from a a Muslim background. And when his family found out that he had turned to Christ and that he was actually very active in sharing his faith, um, they decided that this was totally wrong, that he he was not allowed to, to, to do this anymore. So his uncle took him, attached him to a piece of wood and hung him up in a barn. And they, they left him there. I assumed that they were giving him food. Um, but he would not renounce his faith. Um, and after about 60 days, um, as he was sort of going in and out of, of, of consciousness, what he really, really wanted was a shower. <laughs> he was like, I'm just so dirty and smelly. I, he just couldn't, couldn't cope with this. Um, and a cow wandered into the barn and started to lick him. <laughs> and he was like, what is going on? <laughs> but actually, the cow licked him clean. So afterwards, Whoa. he didn't smell. So um, when his family realized that, that, that he wasn't going to renounce his faith, they... Um, they, they took him down, and soon after that, his uncle was in a car crash. And as he was dying, this guy went to the hospital and said, I forgive you. And the uncle was totally, just could not believe that after what he'd put this guy through, he would, he would forgive him and gave his life to Christ before he died. And the family, seeing... They actually saw the car crash as God's judgment. Islam is a very um, fatalistic religion. And so they also turned turned to Christ because this guy had stood firm had, 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 and had forgiven his uncle. Wow, wow. And do, um, what did you learn about God uh, in, that, in your time in Egypt and during the revolution and the whole sort of time afterwards? Hmm. Um, well, I want to tell one very um, personal story about the about the love of God that I experienced. Um, so when you're a, when you're living abroad long term, it's very different to going short term. I feel like short term is a bit like going to a, to a theme park where it's different, it's exciting. There's quite a lot of of um, waiting a- around, but at the end of the the day, you you get to go home. You you you, you know you, you have experienced highs and lows, but it's done. Long term, I feel like it's a bit like training for a football match, and then you turn up and everyone's playing hockey. And the match never stops. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, and so you're constantly out of out of your depth, you know, and it's very tiring. Um, and so things in Egypt, for example, like um, punctuality isn't a value. So I could arrange to meet a friend, and an hour later, still uh, still be waiting for them, and that's not rude. Um, honesty also. You know, it's more important. It's more important you don't hurt the person than it is about being honest. Um, and I found after a while, you know, these things kind of um, wear you down. Um, 
And, and I think God also is very good at, um, he says to, to Jeremiah that Jeremiah will be a person who tears down and builds up. Mm. And I feel like sometimes he takes us through an experience of tearing things down that are incorrect in our understanding of who Christ is so that he can build them back up again. And one of those for me was the fact that I could accept his love. And I hadn't realized, so I, I grew up as, as a Christian um, and I think I'd always like had a list of boxes that I could keep ticked. So, you know, I wasn't breaking the rules, I was reading the Bible, I was going to, to church. And for all those reasons, I could accept God's love. Um, and about two years in, in, into my time in, in Egypt, um, I had a very close friend that I, in an, in an act of unthink, unthinking selfishness, just broke a confidence and told somebody else something that, that um, he had told me. And this thing got passed on. And it ended up in a situation where this friendship couldn't, couldn't continue. And as the friendship broke down, he said things to me that, that were true about how nasty I, I, I had been. And I'd always understood spiritual warfare being like, okay, the devil comes at me with lies and I counter him with truth, yeah. you know, with the, with the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. So for example, you know, if God's, you know, if the accusation comes like, you know, you are not lovely, you, 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 that you cannot be loved, then you can counter it with um, God is love and for God so loved the world, he, he um, gave his, 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 his only son. But this was the first time that the accusation had been accurate and true. And I didn't have a defense for that. And I took it on myself as my, as my identity. And it was quite a difficult period where I felt like, you know, what is the point in looking after myself? I am not worth anything. I'm not precious. Um, and um, I was also very... I also... Um, repented of that, um, you know, and turned to God and said, I, I cannot save myself. I'm not a good person. Um, and I felt like what happened after that was what I call an assault of love, where every song I listened to, um, mm. every sermon I, I heard, every book I read was all about grace, was all about the, was all about the, the love of God for, for sinners. And there's one particular story from the Bible that totally transformed my understanding as well. Um, this is coming as 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 a Christian. Um, the story of the woman caught in in, in adultery. Now, if you don't know that that story, it's the the religious authorities bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, so she is 100% guilty. They bring her to Jesus, and they're trying to to trick him and get him to say something that they can that they can condemn him with because if he says yes she deserves to die according to the law of Moses um, you know then he's saying that somebody should die and if he, if he counteracts that then he's not obeying the, the, the law but what he does um, he, doesn't, he doesn't respond to them he kneels down and starts drawing in the, in, in the sand which I think is a very um, humbling act because yeah. he's not standing in judgment over her um, and the accusations come again and again, and eventually he says, let, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they go away from the eldest to the, to the youngest. And then he says, you know, where are your accusers now? And she says, there is no one. And he says, okay, well, I, I don't accuse you either. And the phrase, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, I'd always understood that to mean, you know, you cannot judge. You are not sinless. Therefore, who are you to, to judge? But I feel like I had this experience where God opened my eyes and I saw that he who is without sin 
is Jesus. That Jesus has the right to judge. He has the right to pick up a stone and throw it and say, you deserve judgment. And he doesn't. Mm. And because he doesn't, it means that nobody else can. Nobody else has the right to, to, to judge because he chooses not to. Um, yeah, and so that for me was a very transforming yeah. experience. So if there's someone here, uh, and there probably is, who is feeling the weight of guilt or shame or feeling condemned either by other people or by themselves, what would you, want to, what would you say to them this morning? Yeah, I'd say imagine yourself in that place. Imagine yourself, the woman who was caught in adultery. We don't know what she was wearing even, you know, surrounded by accusers. Just imagine Jesus there, and he's not even looking down at you. And just hear him say, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. And just imagine one by one all those accusations, all those things that you've done in the past, all those times you felt that you are not worthy, just let them go one by one till it's just you and Jesus. Mm. And then hear him say, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Mm. Amazing. Can I just tell, tell one more story? Of course you can. <laughs> so um, I saw... Um, Loads of examples of God's um, incredible and creative um, um, provision when I was in Egypt. Um, I didn't quite have enough money to live there, but God did really creative ways um, of giving. And I had one experience, my, my last but one time in the prayer room. So I'd been there five years, day in, day out, in the prayer room, praying for Egypt, sometimes falling asleep, let's, let's be honest. Um, they call that resting with Jesus. That's right, exactly, they? yeah, there resting in the Father's arms. I like arms. resting with Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and, yeah, and just seeing him come through for me day after day um, when I needed friends, when I needed financial you know, yeah, when I needed um, words of encouragement. And, and my p- penultimate time in, in the program, I had this experience where it was like, I'm just going to stand up. It was like I was stood on, on, on a timeline off, 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 off my own life. And as I looked back, I could see every single day that God had given me something or, or p- provided. Um, and it was like every day was covered And I suddenly could look forward and see exactly the same thing. That no matter what happened, what was taken away, what was given, what God asked of me, it's like every single day. Um, And for me, that was an extremely emotional experience. And I really wish I could like give it to you as a present. You know, that knowledge that every single day God has got what you need, that he's got it covered. yeah, you do not need to worry. You do not need to experience anxiety. Um, yeah, that he knows what he has called you to. And he's already provided what you need. Amazing. Thanks so much, Beth. That was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>